0: Good morning, the sermon text can be found at the end of John chapter 4, if you'd open your Bibles there, the end of John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43 and continuing to the end of the chapter. Let me pray and ask God for help one more time. Lord, you know this situation. Needy people, a needy man, all of us gathered together with our hand outstretched saying, come and help us. What we cannot produce, please come and give. Stretch out your hand, reveal to us the Savior, cause eternal truth to be weighty to us this morning to captivate our attention and our hearts. We pray that people would be born again, old people and very young people, as they listen to the truth about Jesus, explained and applied, heralded. God, would you give that great gift that we heard about a few weeks ago from John chapter 3, the new birth of water and the Spirit. Born of God. And would you grow your church through the normal ordinariness of clay pots like us? Would you do the miraculous thing and cause the church to grow in holiness, in conformity to the image of Christ, in love for one another, in the obvious fruits of the Spirit? Come and bless us now. And most of all, God, we pray that you would be honored by our time together. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. I wanna begin this morning by telling you a story about Israel's first two kings. Israel really had no king at the beginning, but they wanted one. They wanted to be like all the other nations. And when they asked, God rebuked them. And he said, you shouldn't be asking me for a king because I am your king. And the people did not listen. They wanted a king. They wanted to be like all the other nations. And God gave them what they asked for, but he did so with warnings. He said, it's not going to be so good when you get that king. He'll be exacting. He'll take your sons and your your daughters as his servants. It's not going to be so good when you get the king. Nonetheless, he gave them the king. He gave them Saul, the first king of Israel, the son of Kish. And at first, things are good. Saul's mighty in battle. He's a tall man, a mighty man, the kind of man the world would give renown to as a great king. But then things, as you know, turn south. Saul and Israel's army go to fight a battle against Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And as he's going, he has a command from God. Don't bring anything back. There will be no plunder. Destroy everything. All the people, all the livestock, all the gold, the precious metals. Don't bring any of it back. Destroy it all. And Saul and his army know full well what the command is and choose to disregard it because they have a better idea. They choose to bring back Agag, the Amalekite, the king, and they also choose to bring back the best of the livestock, saying, oh, we were going to give it in worship and in sacrifice to God. And so from that moment... Judgment comes on Saul and the kingdom is torn away from him. Enter then the second king, King David. You know the story. The prophet Samuel goes to David's father's house, Jesse's house. He looks at all the older sons. None of them will do. The Lord says, No, 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 no. Don't you have any more sons? Oh, well, there's the youngest one, David, the young little boy. Well, bring him. And when he gets there, the Lord says to Samuel, That's the next king of Israel. And so Samuel anoints him as the next, the future king of Israel. And now you have a tension. An existing king, Saul, from whom the kingdom is being torn, and the anointed future king, David, whom God himself will put on the throne. And here's the tension. David, pardon me, Saul knows this. And Saul is insecure. And Saul is paranoid. Well, long story short, through a series of military victories, including Goliath and including against some other nations, David rises to some prominence, and Saul receives him. That's a key word. Saul receives David, but only on certain terms and only on with certain conditions. He's something like a secretary of defense. He's a great war captain, and he sits at Saul's table at banquets. At one point, Saul even gives him his own daughter in marriage, but it's a trap. It's a death trap. Saul hopes, long story short, that David will actually meet his end as a result of his marriage to his daughter. And there are other times when Saul goes into a fit of rage and he takes his javelin and he hurls it at David and tries to pin him against the wall. So you have this weird situation in which Saul's always receiving David, but here's what I want you to hear. Under no circumstances will Saul receive David as king. He will receive David. You can be a military hero, you can be my son-in-law, you can be the harp player who soothes me when I'm in a fit. I will never receive you as king. And the same thing that happens to King David in that story also happens to King Jesus in our text for today. They receive him, but not how they're supposed to. John's already given us a hint of this earlier at the end of chapter 2 when our brother Tommy preached. Let me read it to you, the last three verses. Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing the signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. It says they believed as they observed the signs, and then Jesus did not trust them. There was a problem with their faith. All receiving or believing isn't the same. Consider also Simon the magician in the book of Acts. He believed, it says. And then it turns out in the end, really all he wanted was the miraculous power that he had observed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. There was a problem with his receiving Jesus. There was a problem with his believing. He had what the old writers would have called a spurious faith. That's phony faith, counterfeit faith. And that's what we'll see in our text this morning. And as we dive in, you ought to consider your own faith. It may well be that the Lord will reveal to us some aspect of our own receiving Jesus that is spurious, counterfeit, phony, flawed. And if he does expose that in you, repent, turn to Jesus for help. The same one who exposes is the one who heals. That brings us to today's text beginning in John chapter 4 verse 43. We'll take the sermon this morning in two parts, that's the way it's divided. The first three verses, 43 through 45, and then the remainder for our second point. But the first point, the prophet has no honor in his own country. As you dig in, we need to zoom way, way out. The chapter, or the section of our sermon text begins saying, after the two days he went forth from there, that's Samaria, into Galilee. And what's going on is Jesus is now completing a journey that he began in the early verses of chapter 4. He began in Judea after the feast of the Passover and he set his mind to go to Galilee. But as you remember, he had to go through Samaria. When he gets there, the Samaritans receive him with real faith, as Jordan preached last week. He spends two days with them, that's the two days in our text, and then he completes his journey arriving in Galilee. Galilee is north it's away from Jerusalem it's away from the center of religious activity it's where Nazareth is located where Jesus grew up it's where Capernaum is located where Jesus spent a really large amount of time and Jesus is back in his own country and in verse 44 John the writer the narrator gives us a bleak forecast of what's coming now that he's back in not only Israel in general but also Galilee and he says Jesus himself is the one who said A prophet has no honor in his own country. A prophet has no honor in his own country. And before we press in too far, we have to ask, what's the country? What country is it, for Jesus specifically, in which he has no honor? This is debated. You have two real main options. The first is, he's in Galilee, where he grew up. I mentioned Nazareth, as opposed to Judea. He has no honor where he grew up. Or, alternately, and this is what I think is correct, he has no honor among the people of God in Israel as opposed to where he just came from, Samaria. He's back among his own people. I do think that's the most persuasive understanding of what we're meant to get from the text he came back to the land of Israel after having been in Samaria he's back in his hometown remember the reception that he received in Samaria he did get honor there he didn't do any miracle there was no sign there he is with the Samaritans they all come out and these ungodly bad theology half-breed people receive the Messiah with faith and then at the end what does it say this man is the savior of the world. And that reception, that receiving, stands in stark contrast with what happens in Israel over and over and over again. Let me tell you what I mean. Look in verse 45. It says there that the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. That sounds an awful lot like the end of John chapter 2, doesn't it? They saw the signs, they saw everything these Galileans did, having gone now down to Jerusalem to the feast. They'd seen all the things that he did, and they, just like the people at the end of chapter 2, saw and believed. But the commentary we get at the end of chapter 2 is not positive, it's negative. Jesus didn't entrust himself to people with that kind of faith. Let me explain further. John's Gospel talks like this about his own people, i.e. Israel, the totality of Israel, all the time. The prologue, which previews the entire Gospel, has the line that you remember in saying, he came to his own, and his own did not receive him, by and large. And beginning then at the early parts of John, progressing all the way, especially until chapter 12, what you have is escalating conflict and rejection. Chapter 5, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is these that testify about me and you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. Or in chapter 6, he says, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves and were filled you don't care about me, you just want more bread in your belly. Or in chapter 8, it gets worse, doesn't it? You are of your father, the devil, Jesus tells them. And it goes on. There's more just like that. The resounding theme, the overwhelming pattern in Israel, with few exceptions, is that his own did not receive him. So you can see what's happening. Jesus is returning from Samaria back to his own people, The Samaritans who should not have believed and received him did. He's back now with his own people, the prophets returning to his own country. And the people who should believe, who should receive him, and who should give him honor, don't. The Israelites were willing to receive him on their own terms, as a miracle worker, who could heal their diseases and put bread in their bellies. But just like Saul only was willing to receive David on certain terms, the Israelites were not willing to receive Jesus on his terms. They didn't want any part of that. They didn't want him as Messiah. They didn't want him as king. They didn't want any of that. It's just like the difference between adoption and fostering. So if you have a foster child that you treat just like an adopted child, we would all say, oh, that's wonderful. Look at the love and the commitment. But on the other hand, if you have an adopted child and you treat your adopted child like a foster child, we would all be outraged. It would be terrible. No commitment, no long-term commitment, something like that. You're always holding the child maybe at arms like that. I don't know if we're going to continue on this process or not. No, it's awful. It's damaging. It's wrong. So you're receiving the child, yes, but not as he should be received, not in the way that's fitting based on the relationship that you ought to have, That's what's going on here. Jesus gets no honor from this kind of receiving. How should they have received him? If there's a problem, if the prophet has no honor, even though they're receiving him somehow, how is it that they're supposed to receive him? And for the answer to that question, John gives us the story that begins in verse 46. And as we dig into the story, there are a few things that I want to point out at the beginning that will help frame the story so that we all see what we're supposed to see as we dig in. First, the chapter in our text ends with a summary statement just like the first miracle did, the first sign in John chapter 2. Look at verse 54. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. That sounds so much like John chapter 2, verse 11. This is the second sign, not the second sign that he had done at all. Chapter 2 also tells us he did many signs in Jerusalem at the Feast of the Passover, but this is the second sign that he did in Galilee. And it also happens to be only the second sign that John narrates for us in detail. So in that way, it's the second narrated sign. And I point that out to remind us all again what's the function of the sign. We've pointed again and again, and I hope we'll continue to do so, to the purpose statement of John, which is found at the very end, when John says, Jesus did so many things during his earthly ministry, and I couldn't even write them all down. But these, these things have been written with a particular agenda. They are written so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and to have life in his name. When you see the sign, It's supposed to do something to you to provoke you to faith so that you say, oh, there's the Messiah. There's the Messiah. He's here. He's come. It's Christmas this week, isn't it? He's come. That's what the signs are about, to provoke you to faith. And just like in John chapter 2, the multiplication of or pardon me, not the multiplication, the turning, the transformation of water into wine had an Old Testament background. The miracle wasn't just random. In the same way, the miracle in today's text has a meaning. I'll give you just one text from Isaiah chapter 35. Isaiah, as you know, is a prophet about 700 years before Jesus came. He was writing often, and in this case, of The day of the Lord that would come. Yes, there will be an exile. Things will be bad. The people will be judged for their sin. But God will come. God will send a deliverer. It's not always going to be like this. The day of the Lord will come. The latter days will arrive. There will be deliverance. There's going to be a Messiah. What will it be like when the Messiah comes? Isaiah says, Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. What about the miracles? Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like the deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. When the Messiah comes... The effects of the curse, death, sorrow, sin, blindness, deafness, lameness will all start to be rolled back so that when the miracles come, the signs come, it should go off in your mind, ah, the Messiah. And that's what John says he's trying to do. The signs show us the Messiah has come. And then finally, last bit of framing before we dig into the story, the messianic glory of Jesus is revealed in the form of two overlapping stories. I've been talking about the sign. That's the first overlap, part of the overlapping story. And then second, as John the writer himself framed our story, when Jesus gets to his own country, the prophet has no honor. So there's wonderful revelation with a background of a problem. He's not received how he should be. With that, let's get into the story. John tells us that Jesus returns to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. We're back in the exact same place where the first sign had occurred. And then John introduces this man. He's a father. We'll call him the royal. The translations call him a royal official or an official or a nobleman or even a government official he's probably not a king per se but probably is somebody associated with the king in this case probably Herod Antipas so he's somebody who works say in the government in some kind of high up respected position he is important he's well connected he's probably wealthy he's gone way up the ladder he's got good resources drives a nice car he's got a generous health insurance plan with very good coverage and access to all the right doctors and then we find out that the royal has a little boy. And I say little boy because there in verse 49 he's called a child. Several times, or a couple times, he's called a son. But in that case, in verse 49, he's called a child. And that word is usually used of a child who's not yet reached puberty. So the son is not 16. Maybe he's six or eight. He's a little boy. And then we find out that he's six. In fact, he's very sick. The text says that he's at the point of death. And later on in the text, towards the end, it says that the fever left him. So he's sick now, we know, with a fever. So I want you to turn on your imagination. Imagine a six- or seven-year-old little boy in the bed with a smoking hot fever. Maybe it's 104 Maybe it's 105. It's lethal, whatever it is. There's no vigor. He's not getting up and playing. He doesn't even want to move. He's near to death. No sparkle in his eye. No joy. No smile. His face is flushed, eyes closed. They've done a lot of, they've made a lot of efforts to try and get him some help. And none of their efforts have come to any good end? How many tears have been cried over that little boy in the bed? How many sleepless nights have their parents, has, have his parents endured for him? I guess that some of you have known a grief like that. Maybe a child, maybe some other loved one, but that sense of hopelessness and that's what the royal would have felt. Imagine having a son about to die And then he hears that Jesus has finished his journey from Judea up through Samaria and now into Galilee. The royal son is in Capernaum, that's in Galilee. And Jesus has now come closer and he hears about it. And he's desperate. And so he goes on a journey for one last try to save his little boy. He doesn't want to lose him. So he asks around. He gets into Galilee. He gets the word on the street and he finally sees Jesus from afar. Perhaps he's there with his disciples. With a boldness fueled by a father's desperate love for his little boy, he goes and he approaches Jesus and the text says he was asking Jesus to come down to Capernaum and heal his son. Please. He's about to die. Come and heal him. I mentioned that this is not a man probably accustomed to this sort of Shameless, asking for help. Doubt it. Doubt it. But he was asking Jesus for help. And after all this setup, Jesus responds there in verse 48 Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And this is not what I expected at all a desperate father, a boy about to die, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. What's going on? And this is further complicated by the fact that as I mentioned earlier, the whole Gospel of John, at least the first half of it, is structured around these signs, and the function of the signs is meant to engender faith. The purpose of the signs is to promote faith. And Jesus says, if you don't see the signs, you simply won't believe. What is going on? We'll tackle one of those questions at a time, each after the other. First, what's the problem with their need of signs? What is the essence of Jesus' rebuke? Why did he say that? What is he so upset about that in that moment he would level that criticism? The answer lies, I believe, in the difference between God's gracious giving of signs and the people requiring them of God as a prerequisite for faith. Put another way, God can choose to grant miraculous signs through Jesus, but no man can demand them from God. You cannot, under any circumstances ever, Give God an ultimatum. If I don't see what I want to see, I'm not going to believe you. You can't insist that God prove himself to you on your terms. So Jesus, the man comes, please help my little boy, and Jesus makes it clear that he owes nothing to anyone. Another way of putting it is, they ought to believe Without the sign, without the miracle, but they apparently require it. Would Jesus give that same rebuke to you today? What are you requiring of God? Do you have terms and conditions? I'll continue to follow Jesus so long as fill in the blank. Are you tempted to think those kinds of things? As long as your own kids are healthy, you'll follow Jesus. As long as you keep your job and your income, as long as politics turn out your way, what are you requiring of God as a prerequisite for receiving him, for putting all your faith in him? Are you requiring anything of him? Friends, God is faithful it means he always does everything he said he would do. Or another way of putting it, he is totally believable. When God makes a promise, he will keep it. You should trust him outright, no terms, no conditions, no ultimatums, no requirements of him whatsoever. If you don't trust him, you withhold honor from him. That's what it means that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. The way it works, just to make it plain, the prophet grew up in a certain area, whether it's a hometown or the whole nation of Israel, as I've been arguing. He shows up to his own place, and just like happens to Jesus elsewhere in the Gospels, when he gets there, he makes these claims, teaching, miracles, whatever it is, and they say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. We know him. We know, in Matthew, The the account goes, we know his dad, that's a carpenter's son. And we know his mom, that's Mary, his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters. They're all here with us. What's going on? What's gotten into him? He's acting like he's somebody, but we know him. The problem, the reason they dishonor him, is they don't believe him. They think he's a fraud. They think he's a phony. And it dishonors him. And so for us, when God comes and he tells you something he's going to do, and we don't believe him. It's the same. He's dishonored by that. It is calling God unfaithful every time we don't take him at his word. And Jesus knows that's what's going on. They gotta have those signs or they won't believe him. They're calling him not credible. Signs are meant to be a gracious gift from God not a demand that anybody places on him. And that's the essence of Jesus's rebuke. Now the second question, why that rebuke in this moment? The father, desperate, the sick little boy, what if he dies before Jesus is able to say what he's trying to say? Is this really the right moment? I mean, maybe some of us would have counseled Jesus not to say that in that moment. Maybe you would, maybe I would. It sure is surprising But I believe the reason that Jesus responds that way in that moment has to do with the fact that, as I said before, we're dealing with overlapping stories. The story of the royal and his little boy takes place in the context of the Messiah being rejected by his own people. That's the day they live in. That's the context that they live in. That's his people, the royal's people. That's where he lives. That's what's going on. There's more going on than just the one family's need and Jesus never loses sight of the big picture. The royal and his little boy are living and nearly dying in this case in a day of awful unbelief. What the prophets had been promising for centuries has come and by and large the people don't want any part of it. Listen to me. Jesus is able to be, you need to apply this, he is able to be, at the same moment, compassionate and sovereign Lord of all things for all time. We are really bad at that. We get so zoned in on one or the other. You have the folks who take the position, oh, we have such a grand, big scheme of things, and we really struggle to... Be compassionate to real people with names and faces. Or maybe on the other hand, we are zoned in, locked in, super attentive to real people with real material needs and we want to help them, but we are not so good at keeping the big picture in view. Jesus falls into neither ditch. He can be compassionate and sovereign Lord at the same time. His heart can break for a dad and his little boy. And at the same time, he can hate the evil unbelief by which most of the Israelites rejected their Messiah and were condemned. We need to, as I said, apply this truth. When you feel desperate, things are bad, you're hurting, you're worried, you're scared, go to Jesus. What you'll find breathtakingly, is that he will be compassionate to you. He will hurt along with you. And at the same time, he'll be the cosmic Lord of all the universe, full of infinite wisdom, able to see the beginning from the end, able to understand everything that you struggle to grasp, how his sovereignty fits into the big picture. He'll see all that with crystal clarity, and he'll understand how to apply all that to you in your moment of need there is no one who can help you like him no one one more application of this same truth and it's a change of subject it's a hard right bear with me what about our current historical moment and the COVID-19 pandemic there are so many things could be said things that could be applied and I'm going to draw your attention to just one notice in our passage in a context of medical crisis little boy's about to die Jesus feels the weight of spiritual realities my little boy's about to die if you don't believe if you don't see signs and wonders pardon me you won't believe He never loses sight of the spiritual realities. He feels the weight of eternal matters. He doesn't downplay eternal spiritual things, reconciliation with God, because of the urgency of the medical. Things are weighted rightly in the heart and mind of Jesus. How is it with you personally and that tension has the COVID-19 crisis got you laser focused on bodily health so that spiritual matters feel light to you unimportant negotiable optional I'm not trying to oversimplify things I don't want to use a heavy hand. I'm not actually making any specific recommendations about what you should do for precautions and all of that. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I am asking if spiritual and eternal matters feel light to you, lighter than they used to feel to you, if the seemingly mountainous importance of the material, the bodily, has eclipsed the eternal reality of your soul and the souls of others. Part of the hysteria that we have all observed, maybe been a part of over the last nine months in our own ways is fueled by materialism. Materialism is the worldview that assumes that we're nothing more than bodily creatures. Our flesh is all we are. That's what most of the world in our nation anyways I should say that's how everybody views the world and if that's the case if all we are is what we are bodily then a virus is a threat to the very core of our being there could be not much worse but we are not merely bodies I want to remind you you are not only a combination of molecules and atoms we are embodied souls you are an inherently spiritual being you have a soul as the catechism says that will never die God gave it to you you're made in the image of God when your earthly body dies either from COVID or heart disease or a gunshot wound or whatever else it is, when you die, and you will unless the Lord tarries. If the Lord tarries, when you die, you will not cease to exist. You have an eternal soul. Therefore, a virus is not a threat to the very core of your being. Let me say it again at the end of this year. A virus, serious as it is, and I'm not trying to downplay it, I'm not trying to minimize, I'm not making recommendations on what you should or should not do. I'm not talking about any of that. But I do want us to have the understanding that a virus is not a threat to the very core of our being. We ought to stand with church history, our brothers and sisters who've gone before us, soberly evaluate what wisdom means in dangerous situations, but do so without fear that all is lost. We should have an eternal perspective that our eternal souls will live forever and so will the eternal souls of everyone else on planet Earth. Jesus never seemed to lose sight of this reality ever. And it did not seem to harden him or make him callous against the material bodily strength needs of those who were around him. And friends, whenever we die and we stand before the great white throne and the righteous judge is there and we're judged by the all-seeing vision and eye of Christ and we see him in his holiness, I do think we'll wish we had been as scrupulous about the care of our eternal souls as so many have been about the care of our bodies in 2020. I want to provoke you to feel the weight of eternity. You will be either with God or apart from Him in judgment forever. So will your family members, so will your kids, so will your neighbors. Everyone in that way will live Forever. The biggest problem any person on earth has, ever, is separation from God, now and in eternity future. Jesus is very concerned that people have faith. What that means is that he's come to bring a holy God and an an unclean sinner together. The good news of Christmas, of the coming Messiah, the one the signs point to, is that that is possible because he died under the judgment of God like we just sang about. In agony, the hymn said, For our sins as a substitute and God as he promised over and over again in the Old Testament raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand as the king forever and Jesus still is in the business of saving souls and the application if you have not yet been brought to know God to be in communion with him is to do what Jesus said they would never do is to believe him to trust him as is so often the case with jesus these eternal matters are inextricably tied with the material ones and that's how it is in our text that's how it is with the signs in general and that's how it is with jesus answer to this royal now we come to the actual sign itself three things to notice about the sign first the raw power I mentioned that presumably the doctors had done everything that they could possibly do to save this little boy there was no hope the boy was on hospice a boy on hospice But just like the worlds themselves, the dirt we're sitting on now, were prepared by the word of God, Jesus, with raw power, speaks. Your son lives. And what no man could accomplish, Jesus does without exertion. He has life in himself. Earlier in John, he's called the life. And life himself gives life to a little boy and snatches him back from the brink of death. He has power and he's not changed over the last 2,000 years. Second, the miracle was remote. If you notice in the text, the royal asked Jesus to come down in verse 47. Come down. That probably means altitude. Come down to Capernaum and heal my son. So, so often in the Gospels, you hear the accounts of Jesus, he'll touch the leper, and the leper is clean. Or he'll put mud in the eyes of the blind, and he touches them, and they can see. But in this case, there's no touching, there's no, nothing like that. He doesn't grab the little boy by the hand like he does the girl, and raise him out of the bed. He heals him by speaking remotely. In earthly terms, he's probably never met the little boy, In earthly terms, he probably didn't know his name. He didn't know where he was, in which bed he was laying, what was the address. He didn't know any of that in earthly terms. But apparently, Jesus has that same raw power I mentioned before, and the miracle was remote. The boy was alive. The fever was gone instantaneously. That leads to our third thing to note about the miracle. That's the verification If you look, after Jesus tells the royal, go, your son lives, it says there in verse 50, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he started off. And the next day, we know, the servants meet him. They came, and they met him, and they say, your son lives. He's alive. He didn't leave Jesus with that knowledge. Just imagine the scene. Jesus is there. The royal's there. There's no, the boy's not around. The boy's not there. Jesus says, your son lives. And he doesn't say, how am I supposed to know that? Like Zechariah says, oh, how will I know that my wife, she's old. How can I know that I'm going to have a baby? She's going to have a baby in her old age. No, it says he believed Jesus and he left. He went home. This is the kind of faith that Jesus is pleased with. It's faith before proof. It's faith without sight. It's giving honor to the prophet, even among a sea of unbelief in Israel. He didn't need proof. He believed Jesus. So with a heart full of faith, I believe, he makes his way, apparently spends the night. The next day, he gets to the servants, and they say, your son lives. And he says, when did he get better? And they say it was yesterday at the seventh hour, which is one o'clock probably. And then he says, oh, yeah, I know. (laughs) Then he knew that that was the hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. He and his whole household believe. Imagine him getting home to his household. Imagine. They already know what happened. The boy's alive, and they just want to tell him, he's alive, he's alive. And he says, I know. And he tells him the story of how it happened. The miracle is circumstantially verified to make it plain that there's not a mere coincidence happening. It's to verify that the Messiah has come. That he's turning back all the effects of sin and the curse. Disease and death are being rolled back as the Messiah himself stands among his people to do what he came to do. He gives life. Finally, John's conclusion, the last verse. Just like, as I said, in chapter 2, the the paragraph that ended there with a summary statement, we have the same situation here. This is, again, a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. I mentioned earlier that the signs have a design. The Christ has come. They show it. You're, You're supposed to put your faith in him. But in this story, the sign occurs in a specific context. So let me use John's two bookends, A Prophet Has No Honor in His Hometown, and The Sign, The Revelation of the Messiah, to try and get at what I believe is the main point that you can take with you of this text. First, a prophet has no honor in his own country. He came to his own, and by and large his own did not receive him. Second, Jesus reveals his glory as the Messiah through the second sign. And if you put them together, you get a picture both glorious and terrible. The Messiah has come at last to rescue God's people. He'll die for them, he'll rise for them, and he'll make sure every single sheep finds its way into the pen. Every one of them. The sign, the miracle points to those realities. But as he does all this, most people cannot see. They will not believe. They receive him, but only like Saul received David. Never as their king. Maybe a miracle worker, maybe a teacher, maybe a prophet, but not as king. They don't want any part of that. How are you receiving him? On your terms or his terms? He's the risen Lord worthy of all your faith and obedience, unqualified faith and obedience. And this is the picture where John leaves us at the end of this chapter. The background is the dark black night sky of unbelief in the land of Israel. But in that awful context, shining out in the midst of that blackness like a brilliant star, the glory of Jesus as the coming Messiah is revealed, coming to save his own people. Let's pray. Father, we want to repent of all receiving that is beneath the Lord Jesus' dignity and worth. We ask that because you love us, you would expose any place in which we do that at all. We don't want to give him dishonor. And we pray that you would provoke our faith. Stimulate our faith. Put fuel on the fire of our faith. Cause us to trust you. Cause us to account you faithful. All your promises, both the ones that have been fulfilled and the ones that are coming. Help us to count them. Cause us to count them as true. Cause us to bank on them. Cause them to feel weighty to us, in our practical and daily lives, so that you'll be honored, so that Jesus will be honored, so that when people see our lives, they'll say, that's a life that shows that Jesus is faithful, that Jesus is a Savior, that Jesus can do what he said he'll do. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.